Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We always appreciate you sharing time with us as we share time with you. Now, often the guests that we have had on the podcast are folks that I know, which is cool, but it can sometimes be a little boring. Today is not the case. This is fresh for both of us. Our guest is Christian Aloma, the founder and CEO of Threadline. Christian, welcome. Thank you. Thanks to be here. Thanks for having me. And I would say it's sort of a one-sided not knowing. I feel like I've known you via the podcasts and LinkedIn and the social posts and, of course, just Green Book and in the industry, but happy to be the fresh face on the podcast today. Well, I appreciate that. And it's always kind of awkward when folks say things like that. We'll <laughs> see. I think in person, I'm far more underwhelming than <laughs> we all media are. We all are. That's the power of basically social media and the internet. So we're far more overwhelming on the internet than we are in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. So since this is fresh and you and I only had a chance to chat for a few minutes beforehand, share with me and the audience. Tell us first about you and then about Threadline. Sure. So I am a industry veteran, I guess, of about 20 years now. I've been working in the marketing and market research space my entire career. My first job was in pharmaceutical advertising. And, you know, I was in that space doing work and, you know, was really sort of starting to feel like I wasn't in the right place. And I started to really realize that there was a problem with insights in that space when we were testing concepts for a client of mine. And it was, you know, a creative concept. And he had a physician sort of focusing on or, or sort of expressing an idea of peace of mind and had his hands behind his back and his legs up on his desk, you know, obviously just so happy he prescribed whatever drug it was that he was prescribing. And we showed it to physicians and the feedback was, I don't like his shoes. And I was like, this is wrong. This is not the feedback we need. This is not the feedback we're looking for. And, you know, moved around a bit, worked on sort of in the nonprofit space and marketing and eventually sort of found my way back to insights specifically. And there joined an agency that focused on emotional insights on sort of the psychology of the space. And, and I often tell folks that's sort of where I grew up. I was in that position for about 12 years and really started to kind of blossom into this concept of, you know, that consumers are people and people have minds and minds require a good deal of psychology. And, you know, really kind of started to double down in that space, got my PhD, started the PhD in that organization and finished the PhD after I began Threadline. And my PhD focused on consumer identity and understanding how we relate to the brands around us, how we relate to the products we purchase, to the, to the services that we consume, those sorts of things. So in that process began Threadline. And Threadline now, goodness, I guess we're a little over five years old, five and a half years old. So we've crossed that threshold of, of sort of getting out of the startup phase, if you will, and really excited about it, really happy with it. 
owning and running a business has sort of always been a dream and a passion and just sort of a familial kind of genetically ingrained kind of part of me and have been doing it now and have been really sort of delighted with the relationships we're building with clients, the work that we're doing and the team that we're growing here as well. So that's me. Yeah, that's awesome. And so many places we could go with that. I want to dig in a little bit more though into Threadline and the relationship to your specialization in media psychology. So if I understand correctly, and you, you know, please, please do correct me, that the core focus is on helping brands understand the right narrative for the right population based upon their media strategy. Is that a pretty good summation? Uh, yeah. I mean, for someone who has never heard of media psychology before, that's a pretty good articulation, I think. What we really sort of try to double down on and we really try to help clients understand is to some degree twofold. And the first is inside the heads of every one of their consumers, of their stakeholders, are a series of narratives that are just constantly running. And these narratives essentially sort of define who we are. And, and we're all doing this. We're all creating these stories about who we are. When you understand that, then you understand if we clearly understand those narratives, we can figure out where we fit into those narratives, where we fit into those stories. And so if you've got somebody who has this narrative running in their head that they are this sort of creative, artistic person, right? Apple fits right into that, right? Apple sort of reinforces and, and sort of emboldens that kind of creative mindset, that creative story. If you're someone who feels that they're generous, certain charities are going to fit right into that story. And so we help our clients really sort of even before it gets to anything sort of at that tactical level, but at that strategic level, understand here's who they are. And here's what that means about how we relate to them, how we build a relationship with them, where we fit into that story, and how we affect that story. This has been an odd week thematically. This is really the third. So for our listeners, we don't always do these podcasts. You may be hearing this a few weeks after we've done this. From my perspective, this is the third podcast recording this week. The first one was on the idea of intuition versus data and the role that plays within the insight space. The second one is with Will Leach from Trigger Point. You're nodding, so you you know yep. Will. Good uh, friends. Yeah, so we, we talked a lot about the mechanics of behavioral science from an individual level, right? How we're wired as humans. So it's, it's really fascinating. There's something the universe is trying to tell me this week <laughs> around this, because it brings up so many different questions, particularly in the realm of media. So let me back up for a second and give you this context. The conversation that I mentioned before were with the folks who wrote Drinking from the Fire Hose. You remember that book? Mm. And it was about the glory of big data about 10 or 12 years ago, right? And the big data would allow this utopian model of individualized marketing based upon you know this flood of data that we would have, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Well, that hasn't really happened, right? Because now we've gotten into this world of media fragmentation and data fragmentation that has evolved more than this kind of broad, open internet, this huge data ocean that we expected to be there. Well, it's a whole bunch of ponds now. So my hypothesis is that because of that, that we have seen a growth in demand for understanding people at an individualized level because our ability just to utilize data, the who, what, when, where, how, yeah. has become fragmented. So therefore, the emphasis has become on the why because that's going to be the key towards individualized marketing, towards uh, towards one-to-one -one relationships between brands and consumers. And it sounds to me 
that that's a central piece of the value that you guys are bringing is having that understanding of the consumer from a personalization perspective versus the broad buckets. Is that yeah, I mean, I think that is part of it. And it's interesting that you bring up, you know, obviously that sort of concept and and the promise of big data and it's so far inability to really sort of deliver on that promise, at least, or at least to deliver on it consistently. And, you know, I think when we look at, you know, even just the evolution of behavioral economics, it sort of is, is following or perhaps seeing history kind of repeat itself, right? Which is that economics just said, we're all data points. And so we can analyze behavior as if everyone is a rationally minded, sort of logically driven, just sort of mechanical robot, right? And so when we say, hey, we're going to infuse cash into the economy, this is what's going to happen, right? And then it happens and it doesn't. So behavior doesn't necessarily follow those predicted patterns. You know, I think big data sort of is trying to do that to some degree, right? And and sort of all of these ponds, this sort of wealth of data about the world, it is a fire hose. And, and we look at this fire hose and we're trying to say, okay, I know that there are 3 billion water molecules in this, right? And trying to say, well, this molecule looks a little bit bigger than that molecule and, and trying to parse that out and say, well, it's water and that's difficult to sort of make and sort of defied and make sense of really clearly in that way. And so I think that's why we're seeing this sort of push back towards if we have all this data and we we see, like you said, these ponds of data to some degree, why does anyone live in that pond, right? Why did this data get created for us in the first place? You know, how did we come to the point where we're seeing users move from one platform to another or be engaged by one type of creative concept versus another, things like that. So to me, and I think to sort of the way that we work and the way that we serve our clients is to say, listen, the data is there. It's going to be important. But if you don't have a really clear filter for understanding how to synthesize and process that data, you're going to not get as much as you need from it. So if you don't know the why, behind it all, then you're not going to be able to sort of interpret the what happened, right? And the data often is essentially telling us what happened. And it's typically a snapshot. It's a moment in time. But the why and the story that we focus on is sort of something that travels, essentially, right? It's something that travels through time with these consumers so that we see, well, this data was created at this point because this consumer did this thing in this moment. And a month later, when they did another thing, we understand why they did that other thing as well, even though both will produce separate sets of data and both will sort of create, obviously, sort of something to analyze. You know, it reminds me a lot of, you know, I think some of the flaw of segmentation that we see in the industry, which is we're going to take all of this data, we have all of this data, and we're going to analyze it and identify these patterns. And that's great. That's really important to do. But the problem is if those patterns are simply sort of defined on kind of, you know, that moment in time, that data point in that moment, like how many drugs does this person prescribe or how much does this person buy? How frequently do they visit? If it's just on that and not on the psychology of those individuals, it's a broken segmentation, right? It is not a segmentation that's going to help you because human beings are not as predictive as that, right? We will change and oftentimes act in different ways based on the day, based on what happened that morning, based on the context of this moment, based on who we're with, right? I can tell you right now as a personal example, I'm not the kind of person that would think I would be spending money on digital artifacts, right? That like video game systems and the things you can buy within video game systems like Fortnite. 
I have probably spent $100 or so in the last month on Fortnite recently because my daughter and I and my nephews have been playing online together. And I just get caught up in that experience and want, you know, my daughter's really into Greek mythology. So I bought her this Cerberus three-headed dog glider thing, right? I paid $10 for a thing that I'm not ever going to physically touch. It is literally code in a video game system. But if you were to tell me and I were to go to the grocery store and you were like, you should buy this physical thing that will be used once like this face mask for, you know, a spa sort of treatment. I'll be like, no, that's pointless. Why would I ever buy that? I don't need that. Right. The data doesn't make sense when you look at it unless you understand the whys behind that data. And so that's what I think is really so critical and why folks like Will Leach, folks like myself, folks like, you know, the guys at Protobrand and Sentient Decision Science and things like that, they're really sort of pushing into in some cases at a quantitative level, at, a, at a, sort of with a data-driven methodology, understanding that why. And if you don't get that, then you really don't get anything when it comes to your understanding your consumer. Yeah, totally agree. And actually, Reese Lab doing some pro bono work for a nonprofit, and they wanted to launch a marketing campaign and said, well, we need to understand who this population is. I'm like, oh, we'll just do a survey. That's not enough. So we did a combination. We did focus groups with EEG and, well, actually, weren't focus groups, they were IDIs. IDIs with EEG and eye tracking when they were exposed to the stimuli, mm -hmm. combined with a survey with a monadic design of three different executions of this concept test with facial coding, implicit, and then a battery of psychographic and demographic questions, including media consumption, because yeah. we had no clue on you know what were the media and I include social media in this as well, where they hung out, where would they ever see this ad? So totally get it. Actually I have a meeting this afternoon with the director who's going to put together this media campaign to try and funnel all that in of this to your point. And I would have never thought of framing it this way until this conversation. So I'm glad that we did of, you know, this is the perception of this population and all we can give you is an outline because they are incredibly individualized right? We have a shotgun. We don't have sniper rifles, right? We can't get to each of these folks individually from a budget standpoint. So we have to try and synthesize this narrative framework for this population as best we can mm -hmm. so that we can get the best dispersal of the campaign out to them while knowing that it's really, it's about the emotion. It's about that point of identification where the individual can find something they can relate to in that execution versus you know this pinpoint level of targeting or messaging that is available to you know well-funded organizations. So I'm vibing with you, man, because uh, I've just been living in that world. I love the way you're sort of setting it up, and I think what's important about these kinds of methodologies or this philosophy and this framework to look at understanding people is. What you said about the sort of data and there being a number of different ponds that starts to reveal itself because there are so many different individuals or so many different groups or so many different sort of sets of these folks. In the social sciences, we've come to start to realize is that the deeper that you go into understanding the individual, the more you realize that we're actually quite alike, right? That we are driven by similar motivations, that we have more things in common. And so if you stay at the analysis of those ponds, then yeah, you are going to be able to find different groups of folks and maybe you can break it down to literally knowing each individual in your audience uh, and really sort of being able to say what would target and work for each one of them. That's a really inefficient way to do marketing. No one has the budget to literally and directly build a relationship with each individual customer based on their 
personal and individual sort of lifestyles. Well, P&G wants to. Right. Mark Pritchard has said that was their goal. So we'll see if they pull it off. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's true, but it's a very sort of inefficient way to do it. I mean, it's difficult for human beings to do it beyond, you know, like eight right people in their lives, much less maintain a social media presence with a connections of 150, which is tends to be sort of where you see sort of the max in regards to how well people feel like they know the people among their connections is, is around that sort of 150 mark. But when you go sort of deeper to that psychological level, what we find is all of those ponds are actually connected to a couple of different fewer sources of, of water, if you will. And if you're tapping into that, right, even if it's a mom in the suburbs in one case, and it's a single professional in the city, and it's someone who lives in the country and runs a farm, if you've reached that depth, you will find that, well, if we hit on this thing, it works for all three. And yes, maybe at those sort of deeper, more personal interconnections that we have between them, we're going to customize it a little bit more based on what we know about that individual person. But when we think about the brand and we think about our campaigns and we think about the things that have to be a little bit more mass, if you will, and mass media is perhaps a outdated term nowadays because nothing is truly mass media anymore. But when we have to sort of market to scale, those deeper ideas, those deeper insights, those deeper understandings of the audience are critical to moving swaths of an audience, to moving populations at a time. And you'll find that there is that sort of universal or at least a series of universal insights that connect you to those audiences. I could not agree more. And even at individual level, right? I mean, let's, you know, we live in interesting times, right? With massive fragmentation and polarization and, and disconnection from other people for a variety of reasons. We just do. Let's, let's own that. And I've often had the conversation with folks that we seem to be on different sides of different issues, but saying, but we are not, right? We may be thinking about tactics differently, but intrinsically our goals are the same, right? Mm -hmm. We all want people to be happy and healthy and productive and lead good lives and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I love that idea that the what seem to be ponds are connected with an underground aquifer, right? Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. exactly. exactly. <laughs> Fundamentally, as humans, there are far more things that connect us than divide us. And I hadn't thought about that as a way to bridge and scaling that from a business standpoint, right? That, that understanding, looking for those commonality, those threads, those narrative connections yeah. to help bridge some of the pragmatic gaps that we see now just from a media standpoint, right? Whether you're selling widgets or it doesn't matter uh, yeah. because of this incredibly siloed world that is emerging. I don't think we expected five years ago. We certainly didn't expect it 10 years ago. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. So there's a client that comes to you and says, okay, yeah, we, we want to sell more widgets. We need to understand the segments for who likes blue widgets versus yellow widgets. Yeah. And we think that these folks are on Facebook and they still, they watch CNN and they enjoy Game of Thrones. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever. You know, uh, that's that population. Where do you go with that? Talk a little bit through your process and maybe it's even part of your talk at IEX behavior, the three tips for applying narrative psychology to uncover inspiring yeah. insights and reveal meaningful opportunities. Talk us through what that would look like. Give us a pitch, Christian. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you know, with a question like that, they want to sell more widgets to this audience. The key thing we would advise them is to figure out what is that audience looking for, agnostic of your widget, but perhaps connected to the category. And then how does that widget, if they are already exposed to it and already using it, fit into 
those goals. And so what I mean by that is, you know, when we talk about understanding consumers, and especially when it comes to the relationship to a specific product or brand, the first critical thing to understand is the context, the contextual narrative, we call it, the context in which that consumer exists as it relates to your category. This is often a spot that I find a lot of organizations skip because they think if we're not focused on specifically their relationship with us, then it's irrelevant or useless to us. But it's actually the most critical information to uncover, which is why did they turn to this category of dish soap? Why did they turn to the oat milk category? Why are they turning to hybrid vehicles? Why are they turning to these widgets, this group of sort of widgets, right? And that is really critical to understand because if you understand, well, I have turned to oat milks as a category, because I am driven by this sense of environmentalism. That person is going to be different from someone else who is driven to oat milk because they have a food sensitivity or someone else who's driven to oat milk because of animal rights, right? Whatever it might be. I am a recently converted oat milk consumer, not sort of hardcore or loyalist, but the reason I have become an oat milk consumer isn't necessarily because of animal rights, right? I hope animals are treated fairly and ethically in whatever scenario that they're in. But I was concerned about, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. And there are other alternative milks that you can get besides dairy, like almond milk, but almond milk consumes a ridiculous amount of water, for example, right? And so I ended up in the oat milk category because of my sort of sense of or desire to feel a little bit more environmental or environmentally minded than I did before, right? Just a a small thing I felt like I could do to make an impact. That is sort of a categorical narrative that I have. And if I don't understand that first about my consumer audience, then I won't understand how my product, my widget, my brand of oat milk relates to that person, right? Why they made that choice in the first place. So we would say, hey, listen, we need to understand their relationship to this category. Then we need to understand the way they behave in that category, right? How do they go about their shopping behaviors? What are the things that are driving them towards one brand versus another when they consider one versus another? Do they develop loyalties or not? Or are those loyalties very sort of temporarily or loosely held? And then when they choose your brand, what is happening at that space? So it's that contextual narrative that we begin with to understand the category, the behavioral narrative to understand how they act in that category, and then the relational narrative to understand how they relate to your brand specifically. And we look at to see, right? Is the category meeting their contextual needs, right? Is the category sort of helping them feel like an environmentalist? Are the products in that category helping them feel like they're fulfilling the goals that drove them to the category in the first place? And is your brand then helping them feel as though they are accomplishing and reaching those rewards that they're looking for? And when we start to understand the linkages between those three narratives, the linkages between those three spaces, then we can really clearly say to that organization, to that client that's trying to sell these widgets, hey, your customers, potentially from a qualitative level, and certainly you can then do some segmentation to try to support that, right, is we're finding three major drivers in this space, right? They have turned to the category because of environmentalism, they've turned to the category because of animal rights, and they've turned to the category for health reasons, right? And you need to think about now how you connect to each one of those and fulfill them. And when it's environmentalism, it's all about like the usage of water in the creation of this drink, in the creation of this product. So if you're talking to them, talk about how little water is used compared to alternatives in this space, or focus on how 
good they should feel that they've chosen the most environmentally friendly choice, right? That they are part of a green movement of oat milk drinkers, whatever it may be. That is how you then, at, a, at that sort of individual level, can start to build those connections and deepen those relationships with those individuals. And oftentimes we find a lot of consumers or a lot of brands, excuse me, go into this thinking, well, we need to talk about features, we need to talk about benefits, we need to talk about a lot of the stuff that I think for the most part, the industry knows don't really work or doesn't really work, but just sort of falls into that habit because it's the easiest thing to market on. It's the easiest thing to communicate against. It is difficult to understand a person. It is difficult to figure out how to deepen a relationship with a person. But if you do, right, it creates a loyalty that can be lifelong, right? It creates a loyalty that is resilient to competitive threats. If we are just focused on the features, if we're just focused on that level of insight, that level of connection, yeah, the next person can come along and say that they use a gallon less water and they will usurp that relationship because that's what your relationship is built on, not on anything sort of deeper or more meaningful that is sort of connected to who that consumer is or what who that consumer wants to be. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and I often tell even my advisory work with suppliers in the research space, look, it's not about features. It's about benefits. And benefits means that that is going to be different for every client, right? There, there's, there's a suite of benefits. And they may all fall into big buckets of cheaper, faster, better. But that better category, that's got lots of permutations. And that's where you've got to meet people. So cheaper and faster is just competitive table stakes, right? But once you understand what better means to your client, then that's when you can sell effectively. And yeah, it's tough. And it's interesting because there's a conundrum or paradox that happens, right? Which is if you are able to sort of elevate your relationship with the audience to whatever that better is and whatever that means to that deeper sort of more emotional kind of connection, they will actually be more forgiving if you're not cheaper or you're not faster, right? One of the core concepts from psychology that we focus on, and I think is at the heart of just brand, is interpersonal relationships, right? To your original question, to our opening sort of conversation around all of this, we talked about, you know, how do you create these individual relationships with consumers, if you will? And that was actually when I got into the insights industry, that was the question I kept asking myself, right? Which is how would a company create a relationship with each individual consumer the way I create relationships with my friends, my neighbors, my significant others, my family members, right? And honestly, at the time, 15, 20 years ago, I didn't know how to answer that question. And so I did what everyone else does. And I focused on purchase intent and net promoter values and all those sorts of things. But it wasn't until I got into psychology, I started to realize that if we think about brands as relationships, right? If we think about the fact that we are in this interpersonal relationship with this individual, and it is very much like the way we build relationships with other people, then we look at that from the perspective of, oh, I'm not here to just constantly provide them features. I'm here to play a meaningful role in their lives, right? My wife has not been married to me for the last 17 years because I'm great at providing features that she needs, right? We have built a relationship and a life and, and stories together that are sometimes dumb and ridiculous and unproductive and other times joyful and celebrant and, and amazing. But it's all of those things sort of mixed together that have created our relationships. And at the heart of it is she knows that she can trust me and I know that she can trust her. 
And the power of trust is that from a psychological perspective and in a consumer world, from a resource perspective, it is far more expensive to create a new relationship with a brand than to forgive or work on repairing the relationship you have with a trusted brand. That's what trust is. It's a shortcut. It says this person is reliable and consistent and capable at doing what they can do. And if there is noise, if there's a mistake, if something happens, I can forgive that because I don't want to go and spend the years and the time and the resources of figuring that out with someone else. And that is sort of how you kind of create those relationships. Even if you can't staff a person to build a relationship with every 50 customers that you have, right? And to really try to create that personal relationship, if you can focus on those elements of trust, it almost won't matter. Yeah, could not agree more. Even if we think about in 2020, right, it's the relevant example, the great toilet paper fiasco, right? So (laughs) the trust was I spent where I could trust I was going to get what I needed or wanted, period, right? So the brands or the retailers that could ensure that I had that, they got my business unquestionably, period, because there was a need. And in that case, and for many of us, there was fear, right, of not getting something or, you know, going without. And anybody that can help allay that emotional tension they are in trust. So whether individual relationships or brands, B2B, again, another thing I talk frequently to my advisory clients. I had one the other day, they had an issue happen and they were concerned about the impact. I was like, well, did you fix it? Yeah. Then you're okay. Oh yeah. Were you responsive? As soon as you knew there was an issue, you jumped on it and you fixed it. That's what matters. Everybody expects there to be issues, right? Shit happens, right? So It's about that trust that you're going to step up, you're going to make it better, and you're going to be there. That's what earns loyalty. And everybody gets that loyalty is worth it because it's cheaper in the long run than dealing with churn. Right. Totally agree. Good stuff. Good stuff. So I really hate that this is the first time that we're talking because we have a time limit and man, I'll bet we could go on and on for a long time. We could. But I want to be conscious of your time as well as the audience. So I heard a rumor that you're going to write a book. So you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm in line. You got to let me know. (laughs) Fair enough. I appreciate that. You and my mother so far (laughs) are the two people in line for this book. Yeah. So I am working on a book and it's become one of those sort of kind of passion projects as much as it's a sort of business exercise, right? Which is one of the things that working in the space of, you know, applying the social sciences to business problems and needs. A couple of challenges that I found is one, a lot of people actually really want to do it, but they don't know how because the social sciences is vast and deep and complex and sometimes guarded by academics. And so it can sometimes be difficult to, as a professional without a PhD, to figure out which of these principles, theories, ideas do I use. The other side was I think sometimes is this belief that psychology, behavioral economics, the social sciences are like magic wands, right? And if I apply this principle of loss aversion, or I apply this principle of temporal discounting or narrative or what have you, it's like a magic wand. And and as long as we do it, they're all going to come and buy from us, right? That's not the case, right? None of these things are guaranteed per se. And and the the problem that sort of I had with it as an industry is I think we started to look at it as how do we use these principles to manipulate behavior, which 
you know, human beings are very good at recognizing when they're being manipulated, right? They're very good at recognizing when they're being sold something. We get that sense. Sometimes we don't even state it, but we just feel like that was icky, right? That was weird. And it's just not great branding to do anything like that. And so what I wanted to sort of set out to do was to both provide a framework for looking at brands from a sort of psychological perspective and say, hey, it's not just branding is about positioning and here are the five questions that you should ask and you fill it out. Branding is about understanding consumers at a psychological level. It's about understanding the way they think, who they are, what their goals are, what they want to accomplish, and that you can build those relationships in ethical and meaningful and rewarding ways for both you and the consumer, right? And so I have laid out my academic work focused on consumer identity when I was getting my PhD and understanding the way brands interact and intersect and integrate into consumers' identities, right? I mean, the obvious examples, right? I'm an Apple fanboy. I'm an Apple versus a PC, right? And you've got Harley writers who get tattoos of it on themselves. You've got folks who are just truly sort of fiercely, not only loyal to their brands, but the brand is a part of who they are, right? It's a part of their identity. When you realize that, one, you realize what a massive responsibility we have as marketers to manage those brands with the care and the concern and the thoughtfulness that a therapist might manage their relationship with a patient, right? It is no joke the impact brands can have on people's lives, right? You hear from Instagram and Facebook and the sort of the mental health issues that they can create, you know, from brands that are selling lingerie worn on women with body types that are unrealistic for the average person to accomplish or acquire. We saw, you know, Legos, I think Lego did a study and they looked at that a number of their toys were still sort of gendering people into whether they wanted to play with it. And so boys would feel ashamed if they felt like they were playing with a girl's set of Legos and girls would feel ashamed if they felt like they were playing with a boy's set of Legos, things like that. And Lego has decided, and and this is what I think is really lovely, is they're going to try to erase that, right? They want every child to be able and feel willing to play with every toy because of how important that is and how the brand sort of shows up in their lives. If you look at a brand like Aerie, Aerie committed itself to not retouching any of its models and using a diverse and sort of just beautifully different set of models in their work to portray their items of all sorts. And there's research that's coming out that shows that like women are actually feeling more confident about themselves because they're seeing these images in their airy campaigns on on airy Instagram sort of accounts and in in stores, right? And so if we realize that we recognize that, I think there is then a way to say okay, what do we do with that and how do we apply that? And at the heart of it, the heart of the book is sort of the concept of narrative psychology, which is if we understand the ways in which people create stories about themselves, how do we fit into that and how do we do it in a way that is responsible and ethical and meaningful? And so it has been a labor of love. It's still happening. I'm working through it right now, actually preparing, hopefully to sort of launch in the beginning of next year with the book. And you'll get one. My mother will get one. And I certainly hope anyone else who's interested will have one as well. I'll basically give them away because it's one of those things in the academic spaces and and just sort of a personal philosophy, ideas are meant to be shared with others. And this is sort of 
the kind of thing that I don't see as a sales tool as much as I see it as like a legacy, right? Like if I want anyone to take away anything about how branding and marketing should be, I hope they take away that it can be more meaningful, it can be more rewarding, and it can be sort of truly done in a way that builds relationships with customers that are important and positive in some ways. So that's the gist of it all. This is my first book and writing, it's reminding me of my dissertation process of how you can get into each an individual word and phrase and just tear it apart and then come back a week later and realize what was I thinking and put it all back together again and then do it again uh, over and over and over again. So, but thank you for asking. Yeah, that's the big thing I'm working on right now. And obviously just sort of continuing to grow Threadline overall and having the opportunity to run a business has been a really rewarding experience because not only obviously are we trying to run a successful business, but I'm trying to run a business that to some degree breaks the mold. And I know that can sound cliche, if you will, but I don't necessarily care if we are the fastest growing company in the world, if we become a 500 sort of employee count, global offices sort of thing. What I do care about are the people that work at Threadline sort of actually truly enjoying the work. Are they able to have space to enjoy their lives? Are they able to sort of do something that is meaningful and rewarding? Or do they feel like they're growing? And so as CEO now, you know, I get to sort of set those cultures. I get to set those boundaries, right? And whether it's no longer having meetings on Fridays and creating, you know, sabbatical programs so that they leave our company for two weeks and go do something else and recharge and refresh and making sure, you know, we're hiring diversely and paying fairly and providing medical leave and, you know, childcare leave and family leave, all those sorts of things. That's sort of like the things that I get more excited about than if we want a new client in this new space. Are we creating a company that feels really and sort of truly meaningful and positive and hopefully serves as a model for the way it can be done versus just having to work yourself to the grind every day, every week, and not actually enjoying any of it? Yep, totally agree. At the end of the day, our legacy is the impact that we've made on people's lives. And as employers, as entrepreneurs, we can have an impact on lots of people's lives. And yeah, you know, I've always said that I need to be able to live with myself at the end of the day, right? Which means that I have to act in an ethical and moral way because at three o'clock in the morning, it's just me and you know <laughs> that potential conflict. And I don't like having that conflict. So <laughs> yeah, to operate that way and deliver value to those that have trusted me. And that's a big piece as well, right? Yeah. My colleagues, my coworkers, my business partners, my clients, till I were talking about earlier, they've trusted me. That is a responsibility. And I need to make sure that I deliver on that as best I can every single day, because what a huge compliment it is. Yeah. And take that seriously. So right there with you. I don't have any strong sort of belief system in my own life, except for I do believe in immortality. But for me, immortality isn't necessarily sort of a spiritual or a metaphysical or anything like that. Immortality is in how long and how well do the stories that we leave behind get told and retold long after we're gone, right? Each of us makes sense of the world, makes meaning of the world, creates a reality based on the stories that we tell ourselves and we tell others. And if we become a part of that story and a part of stories for generations, that to me is immortality, right? That's the legacy for me. And so that's my lens from the narrative psychologist perspective, thinking about what the impact that we're making on those around us can potentially have and the legacy that it can leave through those stories. Now, it's 
Very, very cool. So we are, we've gone longer than we normally do, but I think we could go a lot longer. And actually I would like to, you know, sweet, so just did the podcast with Will. I would love to get you and Will on together. And then maybe you're going to need more time. Yeah, I know. We may have to do a, a, kind of a mini event. And Grant McCracken, cultural anthropologist, remember with Grant, he's been a guest and is going to come back as well. And we, we talked about this idea of Grant and I of the watchers on the wall, right? I mean, just a collection of folks that are looking at the broader issues across the board, right? I mean, can have that perspective of, you know, I think that we may have the, the group of the watchers on the wall between uh, Grant and you and Will, and we could have some really fun conversations thinking about this. Anyway, totally agree. we'll follow back up, but I, I love this conversation, Christian. Where can people find you online so they can engage with you as well? Yeah, I mean the the best place is LinkedIn for me. You know, I've got my LinkedIn account, Christian A. Aloma, there, and obviously we're on the web at Threadline.co, and Threadline has a LinkedIn page as well. I'm on a couple of other social media platforms, but uh, as a media psychologist, I have a conflicted relationship with some of those platforms as well. But the most reliable place is LinkedIn or our web, and always happy to connect and happy to chat and have conversations with folks that have any questions about any of this stuff. Oh, that's great. Well, listeners, reach out. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And, and I think Christian enjoyed it as well. <laughs> I uh, did. I did. Yeah. So hopefully folks will reach out. Fascinating stuff. Really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Appreciate it. Without you, we would just be BSing together, which is you know always a good thing, but I think it's better when we can maybe add some value to other people's lives. Thanks to Natalie, our producer, to our editor, James. Thanks to our sponsors. And that is it for this edition of the Green Book Podcast. Everybody be well. Join Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.